Good morning. Beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord together, worshiping Him. Would you please join me in the call to worship, which can be found on the screen behind me. Truly our souls find rest in God. Our salvation comes from Him. Truly He is our rock and our salvation. He is our fortress. We will never be shaken. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is our rock and our salvation. He is our fortress. We will not be shaken. Our salvation and our honor depend on God. He is our mighty rock, our refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Please join me in prayer. Father God, you've created a beautiful morning, a beautiful day. Your creation is just another reminder of how great and awesome you are. We thank you for the opportunity to come into your house of worship this morning, to learn more about you, to praise you, to worship you. We love you, God, for all that you have done for us. We thank you for it. In your name, amen.
Amen. What a great way uh, to begin worship today. We're so glad that you are here this morning, here in the sanctuary. Also, those of you joining us on streaming. We want to invite you to take a few moments to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Maybe a few extra minutes. Find someone you don't know. Introduce yourself. I want to uh, offer a word of congratulations to Brandon and Emily Hoffman as uh, Tess, Ella, Claire has arrived in their home this week and we are excited for them and celebrate uh, this gift to their family and to our church family and we're excited to have her here this morning with us as we worship. Uh, This is a a Sunday every year that we introduce Royal Family Kids Camp. Uh, we are excited to be a, a primary supporter of our local camp here in uh, Allegheny County. And Nancy Murphy, who has been the director the last couple of years, is going to share a, few, a little bit about camp. And then we're going to have an opportunity to pray for those who are a part of working uh, with camp during this coming week. Thank you. Once our roster of 52 children is in place, it's always sort of fun to look up the meaning of the campers' names. Some of them are lyrical, like power of the moon. Some of the, moon, some of the meanings are cheery, like day's eye for daisy. And some are quirky, like residing in a nook. Others make me wonder if the parent was aware of the meaning before they chose it such as the camper whose name is (laughs) Strong-Willed. My new favorite camper name, though, goes with the name Mandy, a diminutive form of Amanda and first used in the year 1212 in England. Mandy means worthy of love, deserving to be loved. And so if we were to summarize the many things that the Bible tells us about children, It is this, that they are worthy to be loved. So one way to define Royal Family Kids Camp could be one of 52, so that 52 are number one, which translated would mean something like, Houghton RFKC is a ministry that provides one week out of 52 so that 52 children can see that each of them is God's top priority worthy of love and care. Unfortunately, as most of you know, our campers come from situations in which their needs have been made to take a back seat. They have been born into families plagued by drug and alcohol addiction, 
mental and physical illness, relational violence, illegal activity and incarceration, and generational poverty. This week, our 52 campers will learn during our daily Bible story about Joseph. They will see that he, too, had many losses. His family, his country, his sense of security, his ability to trust those whom he depended on most. It is our hope that through the Bible story, the drama, the music, the breakfast club activity, and the positive, safe, and loving interaction with counselors and staff, that our campers will come to see that they are worthy of love, that God is faithful, and that they can trust God. RFKC is a family, and it is a place where the campers are priority number one. Our verse for this year is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will direct your paths. So for each of the past 22 years, we planted a tree at the end of the camp week to celebrate our time together and to symbolize to the campers the love that God has for them. For the past couple of years, we've known that Camp Asbury was running low on space for more trees. Cindy Lestoria suggested that we could build our Friday graduation ceremony around a patio in which a new stone is engraved and dedicated each year. Thanks to the design and oversight of Daryl Stevenson and the backbending efforts of Daryl and Ed Johnson, the entrance to the pool at Camp Asbury is now graced with a beautiful patio. The first stone to be placed this year is named Blessed Children by Mike and Cindy Lestoria. So while our group of about 65 full and part-time volunteers are creating a wonderful week for our 52 campers, many of you will be praying for a camper, staff member, or counselor. I would really like to see all of our prayer partners, if you could just stand and be recognized. And I would also like to thank Barb Woolsey for the hard work that she's done uh, in coordinating our prayer partner program. So if you don't mind, I'd like to have you stand uh, and just thank you. Thank you so much uh, from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, we could not do this without you. So at this time, I would like all our volunteers to come up. I think the pastoral staff will be dedicating our week together. If you're working at camp, here around the front uh, altar rail. And I know that it might mean kind of wiggling your way through the rows, but once they're here, if uh, some of you would like to come and stand around them, just as a means of support, I think that would be uh, awesome. Yes, we have to spread out the ends. It takes a lot of people to do uh, this camp. Pray with me. Father, it is evident to all of us that we live in a world of pain and heartache and burden and 
we lament this, but especially when we see it happening to children. We thank you for the vision of, um, of Royal Family Kids Camp. The vision of the, the wider camps all over the world and the vision of this camp. We pray, Father, that uh, this week will truly be a time to turn pain into joy. We know that you are the master of doing just that, and we pray for, for the, the work of this camp in the lives of these children. As we look at the, the staff standing before us, we pray that your blessing would be upon them. Give them strength for the tasks that are before them. We pray that you would give them patience and loving hearts and kindness and the right way to respond. We pray that you would give them listening ears. We pray, Father, that there would be more that happens this week than any of us could dream or imagine. We pray, Father, that you would bless the campers. Release them from their fears and their pain. Fill them with a sense of your security and healing and hope. Help them to know that you love them unconditionally. We thank you for the life change that you are going to do this week. And as you transform sadness and hopelessness into beauty and loveliness, we pray that this will be more than just one week, but it will be a transforming week. That these children, their lives, would be different from this week forward. Thank you for all that you have done in the past, all that you're going to do this week. And we place this camp, every staff member, every camper, everyone involved in your hands. And we anticipate all that you are going to do. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. We want all of you to know that we're going to continue to pray for you throughout this week and in the weeks to come. Thank you so much for your, uh, your work. Please stand and join us as we continue in worship together.
The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to invite you now as the ushers come forward to please stand and sing the doxology with us.
Father, as we uh, continue in worship today, we have to acknowledge that we come today with all kinds of stuff in our lives, all kinds of things that weigh on us and burden us. It's so awesome to know that you invite us, you encourage us to come to you and to pour out our hearts to you. This morning, Father, we pray for the needs that uh, we bring with us today. Some of us here are grieving. We're feeling the, the pain of death and loss and the various ways in which it comes into our lives. Some of us are struggling with health concerns, those that we love and care about. We pray specifically for Adrian Butine and Hudson Hess. For Nancy Cole and Patty Plaza, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Ellis Brotsman, Brian Maston, Chuck Barrett. For Joe Breton, Cheryl O'Brien, Stor Emmett, Ben King. For Dorsa Sepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, for Laurel Buker, Bill Getty. For Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, and Bev Rett. For Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Crickler, and others who are on our hearts today, and we ask for your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we thank you for the ministry of this church as we serve one another, and we thank you for the ministry of churches around us. Today we pray for the Wesleyan Indian Chapel in Cataraugus and Pastor Dan Duda. We ask that you will bless this congregation of believers as they serve on the reservation. And pray that they will be light and hope to people who are may be struggling to experience that. Father, we pray for your church around the world. We thank you for, for the people who have gone out to serve you in other places of the world and for those who are preparing to do so. And we pray today for Stacia Niver and Jackie Algier as they are in training and raising support heading into Eastern Europe and North Africa. And we pray that as they share the love of Christ in Muslim-majority countries, may they know your grace and mercy upon them. Prepare them in every way possible and help them to know that you are going before them, that you are going with them. And may your grace be on their lives. And we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who struggle with persecution every day. And yet, Lord, we give thanks for what you are doing, often behind the scenes, outside of the headlines. We pray, Father, that you will continue to do your work and to build your kingdom and to transform lives in some of the most difficult places because you are bigger, greater than any obstacle. Father, we thank you for your work in this place, in our lives, in the struggles that we face, and in this great world that you created and love. Be glorified as we continue to give to you all of the burdens and the struggles of our lives in this world. And we pray all of this 
In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The New Testament scripture this morning is Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. And following the scripture reading, uh, children may be dismissed to children's church. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign God, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Thanks be to God. Please stand as we sing together. For God so loved this sinful world, His only Son He freely gave, that whosoever should believe, eternal life should have. I was away.
seated. Now, I've come to the conclusion that if you really pay attention to a lot of the fairy tales that we tell our children, we probably shouldn't. Right? I mean, they're not called Grimm's fairy tales just because that was the name of a person that wrote them. They seem really grim. And, uh, you know, you, you read some of these stories and, and you think, man, I probably shouldn't be telling these stories to my children. I think that sometimes when I, when I read through some of the Bible stories that we tell our children as well. You know, we try to clean them up a little bit for Sunday school, but the truth of the matter is, I'm not sure sometimes we should be telling our kids these stories because they are difficult to grasp and they are difficult to explain and they start introducing ideas that are real but are difficult. And we have one of those stories in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22 and we... We don't tell this story a lot to our children, and maybe there's a good reason for that. But in, the, in the, those chapters of 1 Samuel, David is on the run. He's on the run from Saul. Saul is angry with David because David has become more popular than Saul is. And he tries to kill David, and then he sends his army against him. And David and a few hundred guys are being chased all over the countryside, trying to evade Saul and his army. And they get very desperate. They're hungry. They're tired. They have nothing to eat. They have nothing to drink. They have no way to defend themselves. And David ends up, he gets an idea. I'm going to go to the village of Nob and I'm going to visit the priest, Ahimelech, there. And see if he's got anything he can give us. He's been friendly to us in the past. And so David arrives at the, at the place of worship and he goes in and he has this conversation with Ahimelech. And ultimately, Ahimelech gives him the bread that would be normally sacrificed because uh, the men are desperate. And he gives David the bread. David takes the sword of Goliath and he goes and feeds his men. And as he leaves, there's a guy standing outside of the city named Doeg. He's an Edomite. He's the chief shepherd of Saul. David doesn't say anything to him. He knows him. But he's in such a hurry, he goes on. Eventually, Saul gets his troops together and he says, how come nobody is finding David? How come no one is getting him? Are you guys betraying me? And Doeg raises his hand and says, I've seen David. And Saul says, where'd you see him? And he tells him the whole story. And David is furious with Ahimelech the priest. And he says to his soldiers, you guys, go kill him. And they're like, I'm not killing a priest. We do have some code of conduct here, right? Even the mafia doesn't kill the priest, right? <laughs> but Doeg says, I'll do it. I, I, what do I care? I don't care. So he goes, but he not only kills Ahimelech, he kills 85, all the 85 priests that serve with him. Slaughter. And he comes back and he says, it's all all taken care of. And when word gets back to David about what has happened, he writes Psalm 52. The beginning of Psalm 52, the introduction says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Doeg the Edomite said to Saul, David has gone to see 
Ahimelech. And it starts this chain of events that leads to the death of these innocent priests. And David writes this psalm out of that. It is an act of, of injustice. It's an act of evil, violence. And David is so furious and so consumed by the pain of it that he pens this psalm. And we understand the feelings of anger and frustration about injustice in our world too. What you have to do is read any kind of news and you see story over and over again of innocent people being taken advantage of, children being taken advantage of, the poor being taken advantage of, people who have no recourse to the, for themselves to protect themselves taken advantage of. We read stories of of children, innocent children hit by stray gunfire in gang wars, terrorists setting off bombs in villages in the, in, where people are just simply trying to go to market to feed their family, people coming out of worship, refugees who've, been, who've had to run from their homes because all the people who have power are fighting for their land. We see it often in our court system. That we like to think always does everything the right way. And yet time and time again, we feel frustrated by the things that happen. And in the midst of all of that struggle, the most natural response is to want to strike back. I guarantee you, David's first response to hearing the story of what has happened is to say, guys, gather up your swords. We're going to go find Doeg. But I think one of the reasons David writes this psalm is because he realizes, at least in that moment, it's not the right thing to do. He's acting out of anger, out of frustration. He's acting out of a spirit of vengeance. And it's the most natural thing in the world because we all feel that. And we may not want to go take someone's life, but we definitely want vengeance sometimes. And David says to us, in the midst of all these feelings and all this struggle, he says to us what we probably would expect him to say, what we expect the scriptures to say, what you might expect me to say, and that is, trust God. Trust God. Now, I think that one of the struggles we have with trusting God is that we have this sense that we believe that trusting God means that we ignore evil. That we ignore injustice. That we act as if it doesn't matter what is happening in the world. And that is not what David is telling us. In fact, these first four verses of the psalm are David saying, I'm, get, I'm, I'm frustrated with injustice and evil. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You're in disgrace in the eyes of God. You practice deceit. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. There's another way of saying, you liar. David is not denying the reality or the power of evil. Of injustice. He is facing it head on. 
And sometimes we think trusting God means we live in denial. And sometimes it's easier to live in denial. I'm just not going to watch the news. It's too depressing. It's too upsetting. I'm not going to pay attention to the needs of people around me. It's too much. It hurts too much. It's too much of a struggle. It's too much pain. I don't want to know about it. Don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to know what's going on in the world because if I really know about it, it's going to break my heart, it's going to crush my spirit, and I can't take it. And we sometimes think that that is the easiest way to trust God is to just ignore things. But that's not what David is saying. We call evil and injustice what it is. It ought to upset us. It ought to make our hearts ache. It ought to bring tears to our eyes. It does God. And and, and addressing injustice and evil is not denial as, as tempting as that may be to us. It is rather trusting that God is greater than the evil and the injustice. When Jesus comes to this earth, he does not ignore evil and pain and injustice. He steps right into the middle of it. So much so that it eventually leads him to the cross. But the solution and the way that Jesus exhibits his trust for God is not to ignore things or to deny things. It's to acknowledge them so much that he steps right into the middle of things. Because he believes God is greater than evil. When I was young, I used to think that the opposite of God was, the opposite of Satan was God. It's like they were, they were, you know, the, the black and the white, the, the good and the bad, and, and they were just equal powers to each other. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you want to say the opposite, what the op, wonder what the opposite of Satan is, you would have to say it's angels. It's not God. It's not as if Satan is a legitimate rival to God that we have to worry about maybe he might be more powerful than God. The scriptures make it very clear to us, God is greater, more powerful than anything. And of course, that then begs the question, so why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Why does he let it continue? Why, do we, why is it still a struggle? Why does he put an end to it? And the only answer that I can come up with for that is that, well, number one, God is wiser than we are, but because It comes back to God's desire for a real, true, loving relationship with his creatures. And you can't have a genuine relationship unless there is the possibility of rejecting that relationship. No one can make you love someone. They can make us act like we love someone. But no one can truly make you love someone. There is no relationship in the world that is genuinely rooted in love that happens because we are forced to do it. 
It's always a choice. And we have the choice to, to love and we have the choice to not love. That's what makes the relationship so vital and so real. It's not a real relationship if we can't choose to reject it. That's what makes love so risky. That's what makes us so hesitant to love so often because we're afraid of being rejected. But God wants relationship with us so deeply that he is willing to risk us misunderstanding him. He's willing to risk us rejecting him because he wants us to have a relationship that is rooted in love. And that means that he doesn't always solve every problem that we face in this world. Now let's be honest. When we think about God intervening in the problems of the world, we have a tendency to want God to intervene in the problems of the world that bother us. And when we don't think about some of the problems in the world, we don't really have any inclination toward God doing anything about it. It typically only becomes important to us and only bothers us that God isn't doing something when it has some bearing on us. Either because it directly affects us or because it makes us feel upset or bad about what's happening. A few years ago, I was reading an article about the, uh, the United States' relationship with Cuba. And you know, back in the, in the late 50s, when, when Fidel Castro took over the nation of Cuba... It became the, the leadership of our nation felt like we needed to do something about that and we needed to try to overthrow his government because it was, and, and the reasoning was because it was bad for the people. The people were now in distress. But the reality was the people of Cuba, many of them, were in distress under the leadership of Bautista as well. The difference was Bautista was friendly to us. And Batista allowed us to, to use the natural resources that Cuba had and have a relationship, and Castro didn't. And the truth is, for a lot, of, a lot of people, the plight of the people of Cuba only bothered us when we no longer had the ability to have the kind of relationship with Cuba that we wanted. And the truth is, that happens to a lot of us about a lot of situations, a lot of circumstances. And we feel that way about God interacting in the world and doing something about what's happening in the world. But it eventually comes back to, do we believe that God knows more about what he's doing than we do? And the relationship that God wants with us may well lead to pain and heartache and rejection and difficulties. And while we don't understand it, it's a part of trusting God. Now the problem with, with our doubts about God and, and our concerns about God not working the way we want Him to is that it causes us to doubt God's promises and God's character and His nature and His ability to step in and to be greater than evil. And when that happens, we have a tendency to say, well, then let's just attack evil the way everybody else does. The end justifies the means. It seems to me that in a lot of history, the people who have, who have 
perpetuated injustice started out trying to address a different injustice. And they got so wrapped up in addressing this injustice that they really didn't realize that they were now creating a different kind of injustice. And we have a tendency, as David says here in verse six, verses 6 and 7, that we, we get so wrapped up in what we want to do and how we want to do it that we actually say, you know what, it works to be wealthy and to have power and to use it for our own ends, so let's do it. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. God doesn't seem to care. God seems to be letting things go. Maybe we just need to do things the way everybody else does them. And David says, trust God. I'm intrigued by verse 8. David, after he talks about how all the things that have happened, all the evil and injustice has happened, David then says, I'm like an olive tree. An interesting way, thing for David to say. I'm like an olive tree. And perhaps maybe other than in the Lord of the Rings, trees are pretty passive. Right? I mean, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or read the books, you know, the trees are active. They talk. They move. They do things. But I have not had any trees in my yard do that. They just sort of sit there, right? And, and they tend to not act. They tend to be acted upon. And when they're little, you water them and you, you put uh, fertilizer in them and you do things to help them grow and you trim them and you prune them. But they pretty much are passive. And David is, in essence, saying... I am passive about this. And we might interpret that as, I'm not, I have no role to play. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he means, I'm not going to be vengeful. I'm not going to use the same tactics against this enemy and this person who's created this situation as he, this person does. I'm going to do something different. Because here's the thing about olive trees. He could have chosen any trees. He could have just said, I'm like a tree. He says that in other places. We see that in Psalm 1. Blessed are those who are like a tree planted by streams of water. He says, I'm an olive tree. And that's significant. Because olive trees are vital to the economic and spiritual and and material health of Israel. Olives are not just food. They are that, but they also press them. And the oil is vital to anointing. The oil is vital to cooking. The oil is vital to, to the, the uh, lamps burning in the tabernacle and the temple. Oil is vital to the, all of the culture of Israel. It is a positive thing. And I think David is saying, my strategy, my task, my calling, how I trust God is to do whatever I can to be constructive and to have a constructive, positive presence in the midst of all of this injustice and evil of our world. I could not help but think of that as I stood here and saw all these people lined up. This group of people standing here is saying... I want to do something constructive in the midst of injustice and pain that a whole lot of children are experiencing. I want to be a presence for good 
I want to be a presence for Jesus. I want to do something positive in this world and among children that have such great needs, have been treated so poorly. The hard part about that is that, you know, an olive tree can only produce so much oil. And you think, what's one olive tree to all of the people that live in Israel? And, and what's one week for all the needs and the burdens that these 52 children have? You wonder, does one week make a difference when it's up against 51 other weeks? And all I can say is, through the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, yes. Yes. And I'm convinced that things like Royal Family Kids Camp and giving bags of food to people who, whose cupboards are bare and paying a bill for someone who is wrestling to make ends meet and taking a meal to someone who is going through a crisis and taking a few moments to pray for someone who is struggling. All of these things in and of themselves, don't seem earth-shattering. But in the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit, they make a difference. Because God is greater than evil and pain and injustice. See, we want to do earth-shattering things. You know, we, our culture tells us what we do is only significant if if it's something that changes the whole world in one moment. Our culture tells us it's only significant if you have a lot of wealth and a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of pain, uh, fame. It's only important if it's big. But the gospel keeps telling us that it's important most of the time when it's small. Remember, Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The smallest of seeds planted in the ground and grows. And trusting God means that we believe whatever we do for the kingdom is bigger than us. And it's because we trust God that we take these leaps, these steps of faith to get involved, to do what we can to make a difference in a world of pain and heartache and injustice and evil. Are we going to end it? Are we going to solve every problem? No. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to be olive trees, to produce good fruit to be constructive, to be positive, to do whatever we do in the moment where we are as God leads us to. And we may get to the end of our day and think, I don't know if I did anything productive or not, but that's not really the, the point. The point is, did I trust God enough to do something? And we do it because we believe God is who he says he is and God does what he promises to do. 
And often, the little things that we do will probably cause us a certain amount of pain. I mean, everybody standing up here that's going to camp this week, next Sunday when we gather again, I guarantee you they're going to look a lot more tired than they do today. Mentally, emotionally, physically, probably spiritually. Because they are investing themselves. And it's hard. It's a lot of work. And it's a lot of struggle. And you wonder if you're accomplishing anything. But we do it because we believe that God is in it. And it costs something to address injustice and evil and pain. But isn't that exactly what Jesus shows us? I mean, God's most profound, ultimate act against evil is the cross. It's the cross. It's death. And out of death comes life. The day is coming when God is going to set everything right. And that's what David says. David says in the verse 1, Don't you realize, Doeg, that God's justice prevails? Don't you realize, people, we keep gathering for worship. We keep coming together. We keep singing songs of joy in the midst of pain. We keep singing songs of grace in the midst of difficulty. We keep singing songs of praise and adoration, when, even with the questions in our minds, because we believe that the day is coming when God is going to set everything right. But we live between the now and the not yet. Between the now and the not yet, we trust. We trust that the time spent with a child is worth it. We trust that loving people who are hard to love is worth it. We trust translating the scriptures into someone's language is worth it. We trust taking a meal is worth it. We trust all of these things, all of these acts of grace and kindness and mercy are worth it. The risk, the effort, the struggle is worth it. Because God is bigger. And greater. And we can trust him. I obviously don't know this morning what you might be wrestling with. What, what struggle in your life, what struggle in somebody else's life, what you're just wrestling with in the world at large. But I do want all of us to know and to hear David's words. God, we can trust you because you are good. 
And the measure of our faith is not that we trust that God is good, as important as that is. But the real measure of our faith is that when life is bad, we still trust that God is good. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you do, for what you've promised. We lament the pain and the heartache and the struggle of this world. But today we want to declare that we trust you. And we want to be agents of healing and grace and mercy in this broken world. Give us the ability to trust you enough to be olive trees. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.